Customer engagement used to be all nice restaurants and tea times. But with Zoom Info, you can engage with the right customers across all channels from one platform. Engage customers at zoominfo.com. Zoom Info, how business goes to market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very sad edition of the Talking About podcast. My name is Daniel Olinger. My co-host here is Sean Kennedy. Sean, I are you feeling better than me this morning? Because I, I don't I don't know how any Sixers fan could be feeling good after what happened last night. No, last night was an embarrassment. Embarrassment. Uh, I can't believe that they just kind of rolled over in the second half like they did. And yeah, game one, which we're going to talk about both games. So mm-hmm. game game one was kind of, it was bad that they kind of fell apart in the fourth quarter, but I didn't feel totally resigned to a series loss after game one. I thought that they showed some good signs with Embiid early on. And I just thought if they could prolong that for more of an extended period throughout the game and a couple guys had better performances that that combined with Hayward's injury gave me some optimism going into game two. But yeah, after last night, it just feels like the sky has fallen and everything around the Sixers organization is crumbling at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, this morning in protest, I'm I'm not wearing anything Sixers related. I'm wearing this cool new Spurs hat I got with like throwback colors, like just to make me feel good. I don't know. So some kind of something to that effect. But, um, is that in honor of the Spurs losing their playoff streak this year? Uh, sure. I, I don't know what to honor anymore. I, I Like, we talked, joked about, I think it was two weeks ago, the most frustrating thing of my young basketball-watching life was the Greg Monroe minutes. I think that last night replaced that because that was just – I mean, you're right. Game one was – well, it wasn't fun losing game one. There was at least, like, some positives to take away. You didn't feel like the Celtics were completely – a mismatch for the Sixers. There was still like in the back of your mind, well, if this goes differently, if this goes differently, they can probably do it. But no, game game two last night just and even they played so well in the first quarter. They had such a big lead and just just like that it all flipped and they got mauled for the rest of the game. Yeah, the the final thirty six minutes of the game were all Greg Monroe minutes. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um so I mean, do you think they're going to get swept? Because I really hope that doesn't happen. I'm pretty confident by the next week when we do our next pod, we will not. We will have to move on to Sixers off-season talk because I doubt they push it to six or seven games. But I'm really fearful that this is about to be a sweep. Are you thinking that way? I think it's a very real possibility. Yeah, there, I don't. I don't see any path for it to go six or seven games. They could absolutely maybe win one game if Boston kind of eases up on the gas pedal a little bit, or it's a three Oh and the Sixers just come out with every last bit of personal pride they have and win game four or something. Sure. That's possible, I guess. 
Um, but yeah, this it it seems like a fait accompli at this point that they're they're going to lose this series and and very quickly. Um, you you said you are are worried that they're going to get swept. Um, I think a lot of people at this point are kind of hoping they get swept just because. Yeah. That would signal like, hey, this is really broken, and that there there need to be major changes made. So I know a lot of people have actually shifted to like hoping for the sweep, which is really weird. No, yeah, I definitely I've seen that take passed around, and I totally get it. Like, if you just want to clean house, if you want to make sure that there's absolutely no excuse for the Sixers for they need to fire, they need to get rid of the co- a lot of the coaching staff, they need to get rid of a lot of the people in the front office. It needs to be a complete reset, a sweep by your most hated rivals definitely kind of pushes you in that direction. But I still think that would happen if they lost in like five in a gentleman's sweep. I just like part of like as a pride, as a Sixers fan, I just don't want to get swept by this Boston team. And like, it's almost something where now, I mean, a series, first round series like against Miami would have been, and if they had lost that pretty bad, it still wouldn't have been fun knowing that Jimmy Butler basically owned you, but it's still, I don't know, just because it's maybe the pre- the history for it. Like, this just feels demeaning, the fact that two years ago, with some of, two of their best players out, the Boston Celtics handled the Sixers in five games. And to be fair, those were five very close games for the most part. Like, it was a five-game series, but you can ask the Celtics. It's like, they definitely – a couple of those games could have gone a different way, and that could have been a different series. But then to know that you come two years later, these two teams that have such a big history together – I. I put it in the one roundtable prediction article where the Sixers and Celtics have played each other in the playoffs more than any other teams. I mean, you have to include like the Syracuse Nationals way back one for that to be the case, but still, they've played each other a ton of times. And that two years later, this Boston team, by having, they had to make some major roster changes too, is clearly like better in my estimation and a true title contender, whereas the Sixers just look like a mess. Yep, they sure do. And it certainly doesn't help that Orlando looked so good in upsetting Milwaukee in game one. And we saw Markel Fultz play really well. James Ennis play really well. Nikola Vucevic play really well. It was like all of the Sixers castoffs that the front office decided weren't uh, worth keeping around. They were out there beating the number one seed in the East in the same week that everything looked like a trash fire on the Philadelphia remaining roster. No, aside yeah, from it, Joel Embiid. It, it really bothers me that we are like a semi farm team for the Orlando Magic and that they have they I mean Vucevic was awesome in that game. So Yeah, that, absolutely. Between actually, between Orlando and Phoenix, I think uh we have enough Sixers cast offs that they could form a credible playoff contender at this point. I actually have like a funny little side note. I mean, I don't know if it's funny, but back, way back in 2012, when Vucevic was still on the team and for that playoff run, I think it because I went to game six where they closed out the Bulls, but me and my dad got there super early. So I got to, they actually like someone picked us out to be fans of the game. So we got to be on the court for like the pregame shooting and the national anthem before we went back up. And I remember because I like held the ball out for them to take it, and I think Vucevic was the one who took it out of my hands. So I always just kind of remember that when I see Vucevic. That, that yeah. was a little side note, but also one I, thing I, I wanted to ask real quick, would you pick the Sixers in a series against any of the other 15 playoff teams right now? Because I'm not sure about the two worst seeds in the East, but I'm pretty sure 
all eight teams in the West I would pick against the Sixers right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, P- Portland is looking terrific. And we talked uh, previously about how much their guard play would just mm. – very similar to, like, what we've seen from Kemba Walker. Uh, and we saw Dame in the game they played, like, go off. So it's – yeah, I would definitely take Portland in a series. And Dallas uh, played very well in game one and then took game two from the Clippers last night. So they're definitely playing well. Uh, so, yeah, I'd take either of those teams against Philadelphia. Um, yeah, I think I think over Brooklyn, I would still take the Sixers. Yeah, um, and I'd, I'd probably, probably take them over Orlando as well. But uh, despite Orlando looking good in game one. But, yeah, I think probably I'd still take them over those two teams. But... That's not great when you had title aspirations heading into the season, and now we're saying, yeah, maybe they could beat Brooklyn or Orlando in a series, and that's about it. We're we're trying to take joy in the fact that I think we're we're basically admitting here they're probably the 14th best team in the league, which is just it's just so you don't want to throw Phoenix ahead of them. (laughs) Okay, I would yeah, 15th. I would definitely pick Phoenix to beat this team right now. It was just so awful and I mean a lot of the focus has been on Joel Embiid it's always going to be on Joel Embiid when he is the star of this team the most well-known player on this team and in game one particularly people were saying oh the Sixers didn't do do a good enough job getting him the ball and in game two like he was a little more assertive maybe throughout the game but by the time like just basically that game was over a few minutes into the third quarter what do you think the Sixers if they want any chance, like have to do and specifically how they could get Joel going. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's really get Joel going. I think what we saw from him in game two is what they need from him. Mm -hmm. Like he was pretty dominant and he kept it up through the second and third quarters. And then obviously he sat most of the fourth. So that kind of like, I think he would have had a big game. We were probably looking at like 36, 38 points from him. Like, what more could they really expect to get? I think offensively, it just needs to be other guys stepping up. You can't have Tobias Harris shoot four for 15 or whatever he did. And you need uh, somebody else aside from Josh and Shake to, you know, make a few shots from the outside. Like, Alec Burks was awful. Um, I mentioned Tobias was really bad. Like, they're getting nothing from like Furkan and uh, Matisse has not even like hit one three across the first Mm -hmm. two games. Like they need him to give a little bit offensively. Like remember back when I was talking, we were talking about the, uh, the ugliest things of the Sixers. And I mentioned Matisse dribbling. And then last night we had him get an outlet on a fast break (laughs) and he like dribbled it off his leg and it went out of bounds. (laughs) Like it just like a little bit more Matisse. Uh, I love you. And you're, trying hard defensively but uh yeah just don't dribble it off your leg for for no reason Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think the biggest change has to be just the defensive scheme they need to do something other than the drop coverage every time against that high pick and roll and jason tatum and kemba and whoever else were just stepping into wide open threes at at will every possession so the question is going to be can joel maintain what we've seen offensively where he's expending so much energy when he has to like come out and hedge hard and do a little more trapping on the perimeter to try to shut down those pick and rolls. I think that's the only adjustment they can really make. And it's, it's 
going to be whether he and Al Horford can be two-way contributors when they're expending more energy in that role. Mm-hmm. So with that drop coverage, because I knew we were going to talk about it, it's a big thing everyone's saying, like, what, you can't keep doing that if you're the Sixers. I know drop coverage is popular, but against a team like the Celtics with so many good shooters, like, it's going to be a problem. The, basically, you're left with two options there, I think. So I agree, what, you can't do what you did last night. The Sixers have some weird insist- insistence that, like, I, I'm guessing it's from Brett Brown. They have to go e- over every pick and roll, like whoever the ball handler's defender is, which I don't know if you should do that. Like Milwaukee's thing is basically they go under every ball screen almost. It has to be like one of the very best like shooters in the league if they're not going to go under. So they can just make sure they don't give up like momentum going that way. Or you can do like what the Raptors or even the Celtics did on some of those possessions last night against the Sixers when they screened with Joel Embiid, which you would see like say someone screened Kemba and it was like Tice or like Daniel Tice, like defending the pick and roll, but then over to the roller, Marcus Smart would like help over, like basically trying to defend those two pick and roll guys by having a third guy help over and try to like tag the roller, get in there. The Sixers have this weird, like they, they don't play like help defense at all, or everyone's like glued to their man, no matter where they are. There's no like this, when one guy moves here, this guy moves here, all this kind of thing. And I just don't get it. Why? Brett Brown insists on having them try and defend pick and rolls this way when it's not going to work against a team like this. And I mean, there were some of those threes from Jason Tatum last night that you just can't do anything about. Like when he did hit the one, like above, above break three of the right, like between right dribbles sidestep, like I'm not faulting anyone for that. I mean, I'm probably faulting the front office for basically trading away the pick that became Jason Tatum for faults. I mean, is is our uh, should have been Sixers segment this week just going to be Jason Tatum? <laughs> I mean, it probably. Is. Do, do you want it to be that? Because I, I mean, now and forever. <laughs> it's just so hard. And I, one of my very best friends is a diehard Celtics fan, and just getting texts from him all the time, it really stings. Just all the Jason Tatum texts I have to see about how good he is, and I mean, he was really, really good. Just all night. I mean, it's just the frustrating thing when you look at these guys. I know I said it before, but, like, Embiid still has some of the same problems. I know he's not playing the series. Like, Ben Simmons has a lot of the same problems. Tatum and Brown look so good right now. And I swear, like, Jalen Brown doesn't miss threes against the Sixers. It just boggles my mind how good he shoots against us. He's taken the baton from Marcus Smart for a guy who (laughs) significantly outperforms his shooting percentages against the Sixers on Boston. Um, yeah, uh, no, you raise a good point with, they could definitely try going under the screens a little more. I think they just need to mix up their coverages Mm -hmm. and that could definitely be part of it. I mean, the difference between Boston doing that against us is that they have the guys that can just drain that shot. If you go under the screen, whereas when Boston does it against us, it's like, Hey, we'll take our chances with Josh Richardson's sidewinding hoist from behind the arc. And Josh has been you know, one of the better Sixers for the first two games. But, yeah, they'll they'll definitely live with <laughs> him st- stepping behind a screen and taking that shot, um, whereas, you know, Kemba or Tatum or whoever is just going to drain that. So, yeah, it's more about keeping them guessing. And 
like not knowing what to expect on a particular possession. And right now they just, they know what the Sixers are going to do and they, they had the perfect counter for it in game two and they just repeatedly went to it and it worked every time seemingly. It just, and also just helps like from a front office standpoint, the Celtics built their roster with this team of switchable big wings who are also mobile and the Sixers, I don't think the Sixers can really switch anything that much. And yeah. it just messes them up. And then, like, also, because Embiid was staying in the paint, like, the whole time. And I remember, like, I tweeted out about how there, there is the rule that, like, if Daniel Tice is holding the ball above the break and Embiid can stand in the paint as long as he's holding the ball as long as he wants because he's technically still guarding him on man. And the Celtics, like, they just – Brad Stevens decided to put Cantor in for most of the game to try and counteract that. I mean, my theory was Daniel Tice, like, Embiid was fine with him shooting as much as he wants. So I think they put Canner in because Canner kind of occup- can occupy the paint on those rolls on like just going inside for rebounds. It's kind of like instead of Embiid's not worried about Tice inside or outside really that much. So like putting a guy in like Cantor who offensively like can kind of give Embiid something like, okay, I have to pay attention to him because he can score inside. And then defensively, as bad as Canner is at guarding pick and rolls, he is pretty strong. So he doesn't get like moved by Embiid. And that is one thing I don't like. The very simple analysis that everyone says, like, oh, get him beating the paint. He has to get his butt down there, like, back everyone down. Like, I don't think that's how basketball works, that you can just maul your way to the rim every time. And, like, I think you have to understand, the Celtics send three guys at him. And he's going to get called for offensive fouls, too. Those guys are allowed to push back against him. Like, smaller guys are always allowed to leverage themselves against bigger guys. I mean, just look at, like, Kyle Lowry and Chris Paul, they never get scored on the post because they're allowed to foul anyone they want, basically. So the big problem there is if the Celtics are sending like two to three guys at Embiid, the Sixers have to either have a play set or like a motion in in their structural system that gets guys open, or these guys just have to make kick out threes when Embiid throws it out to them. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely, I thought it was a good adjustment by Brad Stevens when there was one moment they had uh, they had Williams in and they saw that Embiid was coming to check in and they immediately went to Cantor on the bench and had him check in because they were trying to match Cantor's minutes more with Embiid, which for all the reasons you mentioned, where he does give a little more uh, resistance on those post-ups and he uh, crashes the board. So Embiid has to be a little more aware of where he is when they, they run those pick and rolls. Um, so yeah, that was a good adjustment by Stevens and you're right. It's not as easy as, Hey, stand on the block because these guys are strong professionals that he's going against and they're doing everything possible to keep him out of that area. And Joel's expending a lot of energy just to try to get where he needs to be on the court. Um, so they have to do things. They have to set like rub screens and do some cross action stuff to kind of give Joel just enough space where he can establish himself a little bit lower. And in the first quarter yesterday, they did a perfect job of that. And they were moving the ball around. They were creating passing lanes for easier entry passes and everything was clicking. And I'm not really sure what happened. And they, they became more stagnant and the ball stopped moving around as much. And, uh, it, and we saw the, the end result of all that. So yeah, it's it's frustrating because you feel like we've seen glimpses of what can uh, work for them offensively, and but at the end of the day, that end of the court hasn't been the problem. It's been the defense that has ultimately uh, been the 
catalyst of this O2 start for them. And obviously, like, I mean, if these first two games don't show why the Sixers need Ben Simmons, I mean, I don't really know what does because defensively, he would, he's the guy who you would hope would take Tatum, who right now they can't, they have no answer for Tatum right now. And I really like Matisse Thibel. I'm okay with Brett trying that. But like we said on the last few pods, like Matisse is better for guarding someone like Kemba Walker. Like he really just eats up small guards because his length bothers him so much. Like, and he's, he loves to like duck around pick and rolls and recover. He doesn't really keep guys in front of him that much. That's more of Ben's thing. And that's kind of what I would like to see against someone like Tatum, like put Simmons on Tatum, tell Thibel just hound Walker the whole time. And then, then you probably put Richardson on Jalen Brown. And then on offense too, like the fact that their only good offense right now is like a Joel Embiid post up every once in a while. And maybe a Tobias Harris, like back down mid range. Weirdly Tobias Harris is much better at like fadeaway 15 footers than wide open three pointers, which is very frustrating. But the fact that, like, they can't create a shot for anyone else where when Ben Simmons can do that, he can get you some good shots in the half court through his passing. I mean, that, that's like – if you're trying to take, like, very, like, small positives out of this, I think that – I think this is showing that Ben Simmons isn't really the problem. There's, like, a bigger problem at hand. It's not like, oh, Ben Simmons is bad and that's it. It's, like – the Sixers have some very structural flaws that I think they completely need to re- revamp in this offseason. People are definitely misguided when they point to Embiid or Simmons as the problem with the Sixers. It's it's not the either of the two star players that are the problem for the Sixers. It's the rest of the roster. Um, and that's been the case, you know, at any time they have had periods of, uh, you know, not playing well during the Embiid Simmons era it's usually not them they're they're the guys that are the top you know two of the top 20 or whatever they've been in these past few years players in the league um but yeah it's interesting you you bring up the you know the roster construction and everything because they they finally went to what people would say they have to do in game two you know they swapped Matisse into the starting lineup for Al so they had Embiid surrounded by four kind of wing-oriented perimeter guys, and Tobias shifted to more of a natural four position for him. Um, but the problem is, when they constructed the roster, now suddenly they're starting Shake Milton, a second-round pick, and they're starting Matisse, who's, you know, we all have a lot of hope for his potential and everything, but he was a late first-round pick that's playing as a rookie. So that's two really inexperienced guys you're suddenly throwing into the starting lineup in a playoff situation um, in a really intense environment where if you were constructing the roster how you would like originally, you would have similar players available who were, you know, experienced veterans who could, uh, you know, just step in and ably fill those roles. And then you could have Shake and Matisse coming off the bench because that's generally that's where you want your young up and coming players to to slot in. You don't want them to have to shoulder this level of responsibility where you're Matisse Seibel, you're playing in your first playoff game and then your second playoff game, and suddenly you're the guy that has to slow down Jason Tatum, who's yeah. on a heater right now and one of the top, you know, five to ten scorers in the league. That's that's not a fair situation for Matisse, and that's not putting him in a situation to succeed. So 
Yeah, stylistically, they went to the right lineup yesterday, but I think that just kind of shows the flaws in the overall roster construction that those guys were having to be, you know, step into those roles. And and some of that was, you know, Ben's injury, but that's that's just one spot in the in the roster. I mean, and yeah, it just it goes back to everything needing to a major overhaul needs to happen this off season, and unfortunately, there's not many paths for them to do that in a in a manner that would still leave them um, with m- plenty of options in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you said Shake Milton, I, I like just going off on a tangent here for a second on Shake. Like, I do like how he's kind of played offensively. I think he's been okay. He can really shoot, and we'll give him that. And he occasionally, when he can get to the rim, he's long enough that he can finish there. He can't dribble against pressure much yet. Like. Whenever Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart's pressing up on him, I'm, like, yelling at the TV past the ball because I know he's about to get ripped. And on defense, Shake is, like, just a zero right now. He can't guard anyone, which really sucks. And, I mean, we talk about all the problems the Sixers have, and they clearly have problems. But, like, part of this, too, is frustrating because, I mean, the Celtics, like, are shooting ridiculously well. Like, I, I wanted to bring this up, so... Before, like, they took two threes in, like, the last minute as, like, kind of throwaway shots, the Celtics bench as a whole had been seven of seven from three, which, like, it's, like, Shemi Ojale, Grant Williams, Ennis Kander, Javante Green, Romeo Langford, Brad Wanamaker, like, those kind of guys, which is yep. very there was that Yeah, it, there was that stretch where it was either the end, towards the end of the third or the early fourth where they, they subbed in Romeo Langford and they were using him as the pick and pop guy and yeah. he drained a three to put them up like 19. Oh. I was, I was just thinking that, that, that absolutely nothing is going right for the Sixers and absolutely everything is going right for Boston right now. If they have Romeo Langford who, you know, he's basically an afterthought on Boston's roster right now. Um, like most people consider that kind of a, a first round pick that they would like to have back. I mean, he could still go on and have a, a solid career. Who knows? He's young, but uh, yeah, definitely didn't meet expectations so far. And now he's suddenly coming in and just draining shots and the Sixers can't get anything to go right for them. So before zoom info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. But today, ZoomInfo aligns your sales and marketing teams, identifies ideal customers faster, and automates your go-to-market strategy. So you can scale up and get on the fast track to marketplace domination. And that's how winners win. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, it was. I didn't realize that seven for seven stat. That's pretty incredible. By the way, Romeo Langford, he can be along with Jason Tatum, our other should have been a sixer of the weeks. He was from the Kings pick. So, this the our two should have been sixers of the week are Jason Tatum and Romeo Langford. 
Um, <laughs> just wanted. To I, I'd rather that. have a. I'd rather have one uh, a little a little bit more than the other of the, of those two. But uh. <laughs> but yeah, I so I did just ran this real quick. Like and now I ever since I decided to major in journalism, I have only taken one math class over the past year. So I might have done this wrong, but I think I did it right. And I had that about like the odds that they would go seven of seven as from on their bench would go seven of seven from three after I took all their season percentages and like multiply them together by their number of it makes. I had like six out of 100,000, like is the odds that would happen. That's funny because I did the math and I think that's the exact odds the Sixers come back to win this series. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we got, uh, we have structural disadvantages combined with historically outlier grid shooting from Boston. That, that, that kind of like sums up what happened in game two, I think pretty succinctly. The Grant Williams threes hurt. Cause that's his whole, been holding this whole thing this year is that, Grant Williams, like, is a, is a really good defender and a really smart player. But the one thing is he couldn't shoot all year, even though he was okay in college. And just him drilling two threes off of, like, pick and pops, it was just so brutal. Because you realize, like, you're so frustrated with the Sixers. But then there's some things where you're like, can we just get, like, one of these things to go our way? And I know it's like, I hate it when you just resort to complaining about the refs, but it feels like, man, the Celtics get away with a lot of fouls. They're always manhandling Embiid, and there's, they can be so physical. And they all, like, I, I joked about the Celtics, like, all throw their hands up in disbelief at every single foul call. It feels like they never think they've fouled anyone. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's kind of a common thing throughout the NBA. Like, just, just watching these, you know, having four playoff games in succession to watch every day. Yeah. Just getting to watch a lot more NBA basketball. I, I, I feel like, NBA players only think they committed the fouls about 10% of the time and the rest of the time they're just incredulous. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the Grant Williams threes definitely hurt. And, you know, as we, like there was the Enos Cantor three that he just had to hold. I knew up he was going to make that as soon as he let it go. Cause I remember like in OKC, he hit a fuse sometimes. Like he's not a terrible shooter, even if he doesn't shoot threes really. And I just knew as soon as it left his hand, that's good, isn't it? And it was right on the money. Yeah, but he doesn't, like, really shoot them for Boston. They don't really give yeah. him the green light. It was just because the shot clock was running down, and he had to. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course. He he had to shoot it, and he makes it anyway. Um, yeah, just it seemed like everything was dropping for them. The The basket was basically an ocean. Um, so, so, Daniel, we talked about the, uh, you know, the pick and roll adjustments that they will have to, you know, vary and change heading into game three and forward throughout the series. Is there anything else you think they, they can do? Like what, what adjustments would you make if any? Well, I mean, the pick and roll defense is definitely the main one, like, or just their defensive philosophy in general of everyone hugging their own man, no matter where they are. Like, I feel like you should probably be trying to help over more, like try and force like teams to do what they want. And I understand Boston makes that really hard because they have so many guys who are, like, in their top five, like, there's not a particularly bad player to leave alone most of the time. So, I mean, their bench is kind of shaky every so often, so that you can get away with some of that. But, I mean, offensively, I'm not exactly sure what to do, to be honest, just because the offense, like, the roster, the way they constructed the roster, the offense is, like, just not good without Ben Simmons right now. And 
I don't know if it would be either because they don't really have anyone. Like, Alec Burks is the only one who can kind of create a jump shot off the dribble, and he also doubles as one of the worst passers ever and a bad defender. So, like, I don't know if, like, we want Alec Burks' mid-rangers to be our end-all, be-all offense. So, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Like, they could keep trying to run more pick-and-rolls with Embiid. If Embiid can finally start rolling hard to the rim. He did it one slot last night, and I think he got, like, an and-one layup. So... He definitely can work when he does that, but it's just really hard when you put this many guys who are shaky shooters, shaky dribblers, bad passers. Like, remember that one play where Josh Richardson threw it to, like, the wrong side of Embiid on a post-up? Embiid tossed his hands up and then committed a dumb foul on the other end. Yeah, I think uh, I saw Kevin O'Connor tweeted out that clip last night and mm -hmm. just, just talking about how – Richardson didn't not only was it to the wrong side of Embiid but he put zero zip on the ball yeah. he kind of just like lollipopped it up which is something we saw a lot in the uh the seeding games that was really frustrating um when they went through like that three game stretch where they just couldn't throw an entry pass at all and uh yeah I don't know like where that comes from and Josh was you know their second best player easily last night and that was his only turnover of the game so it mm -hmm. wasn't like he was the problem but that just kind of showed that was just kind of like a uh, microcosm of mm -hmm. the overall problems the team has been having uh, in, in getting the ball to Embiid. Can I give one quick note on Jay Rich last night? Yeah. So, I mean, everyone was saying he played well. I Like, he had three different layups that he missed short on the right-hand side, which he, the Sixers as a whole do way too much. And I don't love, like, his decision-making all the time. What I, but what I did appreciate about him is that it looked like by the third quarter, every single player in the Sixers had given up, including Embiid, who was – there was, like, one possession in particular. Like, he did not box out Jalen Brown twice and, like, fouled him in the end. Like, he, Embiid was trying to score, but he really had given up on the, any chance of them winning that game. But it, it was like – I'm trying to say here. Jay Rich was one of the few guys who just didn't give up. Like, he basically decided, you know what, I'm going to drive to the rim recklessly as often as I can – Hopefully I get fouled or I can make a layup, but I just don't want to go down like doing nothing. I'm going to try and make something happen, which I mean, I appreciate that, that he didn't like just roll over like the rest of the team did. No, he's, he's played with like a really intense energy mm -hmm. dating back to the last couple seating games. Um, he had that one game where he had close to 30 points. It, it was um, the talking about podcast bump. We started trashing him and then he, he clearly lit a fire under him. Yeah, he's, you know, he's been on one. And sometimes it's kind of uh, drifted into, like, irrational, frenetic energy that is a little more harmful than helpful. But for the most part, it's been really good that he's been kind of so ramped up. Um, and I think yesterday, yeah, like, he wasn't perfect. And saying he was the second best player in a 27-point loss isn't, like, <laughs> the highest of praise. But he still had he I think he was a lot more efficient and he he didn't like just hoist up terrible shots even the ones like yeah he short-armed it or whatever but it was still like you'd like to see a little better finish but it was it wasn't a bad look per se and there was a couple plays where he kind of kept his dribble alive and like didn't settle for a terribly contested shot and he worked himself or his teammate into something a little better um so yeah it's I, I mean, Josh Richardson is far down on the list of the problems through the first two games for the Sixers. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess where where do they go from from here after they lose in either four or five games? Is that is that something we need to talk about? <laughs> yeah. So just off the top of my head, like, so we I think we're both in agreement. You have to still keep Joel and Ben because you don't get two superstars like that so often, and we should still give it a chance, especially because like. I mean, I obviously am not reporting this. Like, I have no inside sources at all. But Ben Simmons, like, I don't know. I could definitely see, like, after the his contract extension off of this, his rookie contract is up, like, in four years, like, I could definitely see Ben leaving the Sixers. I feel like, like, when you bet that if, if they're not traded, but eventually in free agency, like, I would think Joel's more likely to stay and Ben would be more likely to leave. Like, what, what, what do you think about that? I yeah I mean Ben's always had the the rumors about you know he's with Clutch Sports he wants the bigger market and that that's dated back to when he was first drafted with the team and there was always the oh the the city embraces Joel more and it's the media always talks about it being Embiid's team and Simmons would want to go somewhere where he was the guy mm-hmm. and I mean that talk kind of quieted a little bit this year when Ben was having a little bit better season um, relative to Joel um, and things kind of shifted where people embraced Ben a little bit more mm-hmm. but uh, yeah you're absolutely right like you're not going to trade Joel because he's their best player and you're not going to trade Ben because he's, he's coming off an, player. <laughs> he's a he's their second best player and b he's coming off an injury mm-hmm. so his value would be at it like an all-time low and the problem with trading a star, a young star especially, is that you would either have to like completely blow things up and go like, hey, we're going to trade him for the first overall pick and future picks and whatever else. But the Sixers are in a position where they want to win now, so they're not going to do that. And then, so if you're talking about fair return player-wise, it would have to be another young star. Mm-hmm. And teams just don't have like young stars lying around who they're willing to give up because typically when you have a guy who's under 25, you're so heavily invested in him and you're, you're, you're projecting forward and you're just even aside from what would be a objective basketball evaluation of the player, you're so emotionally tied to a guy that you probably drafted with a top five pick and you've had for three or four years and you're, you've been working with him to develop this game. There's just too much emotional ties to that. So mm-hmm. there's, there's no way a guy – like I'm just picking a name, like a deer and Fox is like Sacramento is not probably trading him. Even oh, if no. they, they received a better, even if they received a better player in return, just because they've I mean, kind of staked everything to having him. And like, they didn't draft Luca because they already said they had Fox and they didn't want another ball handler. To be fair, Vlade is out of there now. So who knows what goes on with the Kings. Yeah. So you know, but, um, yeah, if, if it was going to happen, it would be a team where, yeah, maybe there was a front office switch and they don't have that kind of connection with the player. Um, but yeah, so it's just not going to happen. Like, so yeah, Joel and Ben, neither of them are going anywhere and people got to mm-hmm. stop throwing out those, those mock trades and sports radio discussions around those topics. It's, it's gotta be other parts of the roster that get rearranged. Yeah. So I wanted to hit on that. So out of the three most important guys after Ben and Joel, like maybe rank like, so I would ask you, how would you rank Richardson, Harris, and Horford in terms of like how valuable they are to the team, like how much they should want to keep them. 
and then also rank those three in terms of how easy it will be to trade them or how much what what's the best value you could get in return for them so value in return richardson would easily be the top because he's going to be on an expiring he's still young and he's a guy that can kind of fit into any roster construction so any team would probably like to have him so i think that's easily the highest trade value um then i think it'd be tobias just because yeah his contract's awful but he's still in his 20s and he's still a net positive on the court Right, he's still a good player to have, and yeah, you're probably overpaying him by five million a year or whatever it ends up I think being. A little but... more, a little more than that, maybe by ten to fifteen million a year more. Like, yeah, they... I mean, you're I you're splitting hairs. Like, pay... I think they how much said they were going to pay him like eighty million. Like, they were not going to pay him that much. Yeah. So yeah, whatever it, whatever amount you think the overpay is, it's he's still a good player to have, generally speaking. So if you were a team that had the cap space, or it wouldn't, you wouldn't be hampering yourself too much to bring him on just because you're overpaying him a little bit. And then Al is obviously the the albatross contract where you're paying a guy that is aging, his production has waned, and the money is exorbitant. So yeah, um, I don't. I don't really know. I, I guess you guys got to play the market and see what's out there. I think realistically, you would have to give up too much with Al to get somebody to take on his contract. That at this point, I just feel like bite the bullet and keep him, and because you have too many holes elsewhere, you're like you can't go around attaching the first round pick and other picks just to get rid of Al. Like that's not going to make your team better. Um, so. I don't, I don't know what, what I, I think it would have to be. Yeah. Maybe you move Josh and you're able to get a good young piece in return um, because maybe there's a contender that thinks having Josh Richardson for one year is more helpful than having a, a, a young guy with potential or, um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't really know what's out there given the fact that we don't even know when next season's going to start. And we don't know if fans are going to be in the arenas next year. So are teams going to be worried about their on-court product as much as they were if they had to sell tickets for 41 games? Uh, It's all really unprecedented right now. And I don't feel confident that Elton Brand is going to be the one to like pull over a fast one on another GM, unfortunately. Well, is Elton Brand going to be the GM or do you think – the ownership group looks at what Elton's done basically the last two years and say like, man, this is just not good. Like, cause I mean, as we've been talking about how bad the roster construction is and it's pretty clear now that Brett, like these are probably the last two or three games we're going to see of Brett Brown in Philly. And I don't know, like Elton Brand definitely deserves some blame as do like the rest of the front office guys that were Colangelo guys that stuck around and probably had a big influence here. And like, it feels like you do need a clean house of just need to reset everything. I mean, you can't, you can only reset it so much. Obviously you probably, as we're talking about how hard it'll be to trade some of these guys, you can't really do much with the roster based on how much they already cashed in all of their assets. But it's just like, they need a different philosophy going forward, both in the front office and in coaching, like in how they play. If only they could find a guy 
who was forward thinking and thought <laughs> about ways in thought about things in ways no one ever had before and uh, yeah like where would a guy like that come from it'd be really interesting to have someone like that how much a, do you, how much do you think they would actually have to pay like do you think if they gave sam hinky like the biggest like double the biggest contract ever for a nba general manager and they just paid it all to him do you think he'd actually think about it if if it was still the same ownership group no i doubt it mm. i think that he was this guy really he resigned before they could fire him just because he was so offended that they were bringing in guys to kind of like chip away this his responsibility mm-hmm. and i don't i don't think it was like necess- i don't i don't think he's a he's a prideful guy in general he seems just based on interviews and everything else he seems like a person that is willing to like collaborate and like listen to other people if they have good ideas so i don't think it was like a power trip like that i just think he kind of was offended that he didn't get to complete the vision that he and ownership had agreed to like he told them going in like hey this is going to be like a five-year process and they're like oh yeah we're on board and then like three years in they were totally off board and ready to to bail on him so i think there's probably a little too much bad blood for any uh dropping the bag situation to rectify well if they're looking for something i mean i mean i don't know if they're gonna even get rid of them because they looked really good in their first game but I mean, this rumors have been swirling all year about Houston maybe moving on from Mike D'Antoni and maybe even Daryl Morey. Like, could you transplant both of them? Like, Daryl Morey's probably as close to Sam Hinkier as you're getting, and Mike D'Antoni was assistant here in Philadelphia. So, I mean, that would be interesting. It would definitely be interesting. Uh, I, I wouldn't hate it. Uh, I, yeah, I think D'Antoni coming to Philadelphia, if he's like out by Houston, is a very real possibility. They they obviously liked him enough to to bring him in as the assistant. And so they have a relationship with him and everything else. So, and he's had success in Houston. So I think they would see that and say, Hey, we're bringing in a proven veteran guy who's succeeded in multiple, mar- multiple markets and um, has a, has a good track record. So I think that would be kind of like a, an easy uh, sell for them for, for ownership to make. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I don't honestly think Maury's going to be going anywhere, um, even given their uh, the friction over the the Hong Kong situation and everything else between him and and ownership. But um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, Brett's definitely gone. So we yeah. have about a, about a week left with Brett Brown in our lives. Um, I, think, so say, I think it's more like three days, like because the, the game's from. So, like, people will be listening to this Friday morning, and that'll be the day the Sixers lose game three. And Sunday, they'll be done because they'll have lost game four. And I just real quick, like, I worry about bringing Mike D'Antoni just for – because he's a pretty old, old – he's one of the older coaches. Like, for his health, like, how, how he would react to going from the spacing and the offensive, like, beauty of Houston to – just the clogged paints of Philadelphia, like it's going to be such like a big shock for him. I don't know if he could take it. Yeah. Like, the, the seven seconds or less offense would just be him timing Joel's timed crossing half court. 
<laughs> no, that, Joel, that'd be his... he, was, he was running so slow in some of the moments in the second half. And I actually was thinking about this, like, are we sure he didn't like sustain a concussion when Canner like slammed him to the ground in the second quarter? Because to me, the rest of the game, he was moving pretty slow. He seemed less engaged. Like, do, do you remember that play when he fell down, like on his head and was definitely grabbing at it? Yeah, I do. Um, I don't know if it was a concussion. I think he was just getting beat up. And mm-hmm. he's a guy that he was already dealing with a sore wrist and every other probably body part of his is ailing to some degree. And then just the amount of beating he's taking, trying to post up against this rotation of Boston centers that are always fresh because they play three guys at the position and they're just, you know, bringing them in and saying, Hey, you have six fouls to use and you're, you're going to be out there for five, six minutes and then you'll get plenty of rest to just like go all out and just make sure this guy doesn't get to where he wants to be. And they can just, whereas he's having to play 38 minutes and be the focal point on both ends of the court. Um, and he's not the, best condition guy to begin with so I, I i would think it's more of that than than anything and then once they just started losing by 15 20 that was probably just like an emotional letdown where he's like i'm doing everything i can and we're, this still isn't nearly enough I, i'm sure he mm-hmm. was just very very disheartened and frustrated by all that i really hope like i mean there's no way to tell but the he's like talking to ben right now saying like dude i miss you like this is why we can stay together. I like that take. It does actually worry me that this is like a very weird thing to be worried about, but in all of Matisse Thibel's vlogs, like Embiid and Simmons are never in it, whereas a lot of the other guys in the team are hanging out with each other, which I don't know. That's just like a subtle thing. Like when you start to think like this is a rep on the Sixers, they don't like each other. There's some weird stuff that goes on there. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like I, w- I wish I would see more of Embiid and Simmons hanging out with the guys on their team like it's a very weird thing to complain about but that's the the, the Mike Levin right Ricky Sanchez constant uh <laughs> like wish is that he just wants to see them go on a wine tour together or something um yeah that you know I like that take a lot this this series you know if it's a sweep or whatever it's what finally brings Joel and Ben fully together and, and eliminate versus the rest of the team. Yeah, just everyone else is garbage. We are the only two guys that are going to do this, and it, any friction between them is completely gone. That that's I guess that's that's probably a uh, a strangely optimistic way to, to to approach what's going on right now. Did you did you listen to the rights to Ricky Sanchez because they did a post game episode after the Celt- the Celtics two zero game last night, like immediately after and just listening to it, they were talking about the whole time Mike Levin did it all in like a dark closet, like out of protest. And he was just <laughs> distressed the whole time. He's saying he he's, he was like finally been broken by them. No, I haven't checked it out yet. Um, it but yeah, that, that sounds about right. Um, I, I feel like we're all a little broken after, no, yeah. after game two. I, I tweeted out like, because I always take a ton of notes during the games for Clemson. Stuff. And, and the fourth quarter, I just grabbed a few slices of pizza and basically sat down and watched in, like, silence as the Sixers got obliterated for one more quarter. It, it was just awful. They, they had a lineup that was Kylo Quinn, Norvell Pell, and Mike Scott at the three. I, I saw that. <laughs> there's, there's no need to be taking notes when, when that's the lineup they're going with. 
Um, so yeah, just you, you, I, w I wouldn't have been uh, taken aback if you, you turned the game off entirely, let alone stopped taking yeah. notes on it. Well, I mean, in a way, like we said, it's only two more games, only two more games till everything gets reset. Uh, even though they are not in it tonight, the draft lottery is tonight on Thursday. And I mean, as Sixers fan, the draft is always going to be near and dear to our hearts. So that's something to look forward to as it is the 21st pick because the Sixers won those three coin, those two coin flips. So, you know, something positive. Yeah, it, that was literally the best possible outcome for the pick heading yeah. to this year. But it was top 20 protected, and they got it at 21st. So that's awesome, and I can't wait to lose it when they have to get off Horford's contract. And um, that'll be disappointing. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, good stuff. So at least something's going right in Sixers land these days. Well, I can't wait for them to use it on Daniel Oturu, who's a non-shooting kind of non-shooting lumbering center whose best skill is rebounding so i mean love love to see him in the sixers colors yeah they they feel that uh they really missed out on letting pesechniks go so they gotta they gotta bring in someone to re replace him i think we've mentioned pesechniks <laughs> on three out of four podcasts now well he's an integral part of sixers lore He'd be remiss if we didn't mention him. I, I kind of liked him pre-draft, so I didn't hate it at the time. But looking back, I do did think it was weird that the Sixers of all teams took him. And they used a pick to trade up and take oh. him instead of you know, Josh Hart and whoever else was available. Yeah, Derek at White. Was Derek White, yeah. Um, great, great, great stuff as always. Yeah. Thanks, Brian well, Colangelo. Well, Sean, for our own mental health, after how much suffering we've endured the past like 24 hours, it's probably – good for us to wrap it up here yep i think that is a good call and uh yeah the good thing about the sixers possibly facing a sweep on sunday is i can just uh focus more on the champions league final and uh not have to worry about the sixers as much so I'll, well i'll keep i'll keep just i mean you can put any kind of basketball on my tv screen i'll watch it so <laughs> i'll just be going through all the nba playoffs and next week we'll probably be breaking down for you guys um potential coaching candidates after Brett Brown's uh, probably fired on Tuesday, but so, yep. So do your uh, Ime Udoka film dive this <laughs> weekend before get get a jump on everybody else out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Yeah. All right. See you, Sean. All right, Daniel. Talk to you next week. Businesses have always needed customers. So customer engagement has always been a thing. You know, steak dinners, golf, in-person handshakes. Not exactly efficient, though. But thanks to Zoom Info, times have changed. Now you can engage with the right customers across all channels and grow your business efficiently and effectively, all from one platform. Sorry, steak dinner guy. We've got work to do. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market.